0: Welcome to Sex Ed Rewind, reflections on how we learn about sex. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Sex Ed Rewind. I'm your host, Carol Confort, and I am so excited to announce my guest this week. I've been a fan of hers for so long. I'm thrilled to have her on the show, Soraya Shamali. Saraya is an award-winning author and activist. She writes and speaks frequently on topics related to gender, social justice, inclusivity, free speech, and sexualized violence. The former ED of the Representation Project and director and co-founder of the Women's Media Center Speech Project, she has long been committed to expanding women's civic and political participation. Soraya is the author of Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, which was recognized as a best book of 2018 by the Washington Post, Fast Company, Psychology Today, and NPR. It has been translated into multiple languages. She is a contributor to several anthologies, most recently, Free Speech in the Digital Age, and Believe Me, How Trusting Women Can Change the World. Saraya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Carol. It's delightful to be here with you today.
0: How are you feeling today?
1: Good. I usually start my day with um, three shots of espresso, in a big glass of milk. So I'm alert, uh, which I wouldn't be otherwise.
0: <laughs> I like that style. So stress I'm a milk. just not a morning person. <laughs> I'm with you. Well, I hope that this will make the start of our day a little bit better. So we're going to dive right into our questions. I always like to start the show off allowing our listeners to get to know a little bit about you when you were young, because we talk so much about what life was like in high school. When you were in high school, What was your favorite band, your favorite fashion trend, and your favorite slang word?
1: Oh, my God. That's a lot. Let me think about that. I think my favorite band in high school, it could have been Blondie. (gasps) Such a good choice. Um, I loved Blondie. That's what comes to mind. My favorite slang word, it's a funny thing to say, but I I don't think I use slang words. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) I'm like, I just... It's hard to describe. Um, I didn't grow up in the United States and I lived in a country that had just actually gone through independence relatively recently like colonial independence. I think Mm -hmm. people think of colonialism as something that happened a very long time ago. Um, But we started, I lived, my family's Bahamian and it's really a really interesting cultural mix of things because you're not in the United States, not in Britain, but part of the Commonwealth language was really fluid and kind of profuse. I don't remember slang words. I just remember being held to a very high linguistic standard of not using patois Mm. um, because ladies didn't do that. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And I I think you really hit the nail on the head. Colonialism has a lasting impact on everything, but I feel like language particularly walks this peculiar line of do we adopt the language before we were colonized? Do we use the language that the colonizers use? Do we have some mix of both? And I'm sure as a young person navigating that and then throwing slang in, I mean, it makes sense that it's kind of like, where do you go with that?
1: Well, and I think what what I think is interesting too that we don't often talk about is in like the United States with so many immigrants, daughters are held to a different standard of adaptation which is implicated in everything you just said in terms of colonialism, because daughters are supposed to sort of be the avatars for the family. Um, So more pressure to conform, more pressure to um, adapt to idealized versions of femininity, whereas boys are more expected to get into the rough and tumble, you know, use the slang, be more out on the street. Um, And and it's interesting because that's been true forever honestly like when you look at court cases involving the status of immigrants it's often the case in some of the most famous of those cases that immigrant men will bring their daughters with them to show that they are capable of adapting to to norms it's very interesting and language is definitely part of that
0: yeah absolutely i mean i think the fact that it's come out so early already in our conversation is so telling um about just how much of an impact gender has on absolutely everything that we do yep. all facets of our life and language is not exempt from that right yeah fantastic and the last one was fashion trend if you had a favorite fashion, fashion trend as oh, a high schooler well, this is as a young
1: high schooler well high school if you count seventh grade it was gauchos love that and yeah that's that i'm like really dating myself but it was ga- gauchos for sure
0: I feel like those are coming back though. Everything's coming back. Everything is when you're old enough, everything comes back. It all circles back. Okay. Fantastic. So not so much slang, listening to Blondie wearing our gauchos. I love it. I feel like we have an idea of what a young Soraya was up to at least, you (laughs) know, on the outside. So next in order for us to get a feel for what high school was like, can you tell us where in the world was your high school located?
1: So I went to three high schools, two in the Bahamas and one in the United States, and they were all very, very different. They were the two in the Bahamas. One was very Catholic Mm -hmm. high school. Um, There was a Benedictine monastery on the the property of the high school. And the second was theoretically non-denominational, but Scottish Presbyterian, more English. And then the third was a uh, boarding school in the, U- in the US. So they, they were really culturally very different. Mainly, I spent a lot of time watching and learning and adapting to those environments.
0: Mm. So important as a young person. Fascinating. And so you touched a little bit uh, two one religious, sort of one non-religious, and then the last one was private, the boarding school? Yes. Okay. Awesome. And can you share with us uh, what decade you were in high school? Oh, in the 80s. In the eighties. Okay. Fantastic. So now we kind of have an idea of when, where in the world were you? When in time we were in high school, um, let's dive right into the sex ed questions. Yeah. And I'm so curious to hear your answers because three different high schools is a lot. That's like, you know, high school is only four years. So in any of your high schools, whichever you choose to talk about all of them, a few of them, did you receive any kind of sex education?
1: Uh, No. I remember sex ed mainly being tied to a fourth grade conversation in which boys and girls were segregated and then girls were given Kotex branded kits that had a little pink pamphlet and sanitary pads because you certainly wouldn't get tampons
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, drawings of the female reproductive system. And that was it.
0: So that sounds more like a, a, pu- a loose puberty education. It was a loose, you
1: might start bleeding, don't freak out. That was it. Mm -hmm. And this was in the Bahamas?
0: Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Not much coming from the school system. So outside of school, where was it that you were finding yourself learning about sex education?
1: Well, I think probably popular media. Definitely my grandfather's library that was full of porn novels, pulp airport novels from the 70s. That was a riot, really and truly funny. And those were probably the two main sources.
0: Do you remember any particular kind of messaging about sex that you got from this media? Like anything you learned that stands out to you?
1: I think it was pretty traditionally, patriarchally objectifying women. I think the absence of sex education made the presence of any information about sex transgressive and shameful for a lot of people, right? Because it was nothing that you would openly talk about.
0: That obviously makes it incredibly difficult to communicate about, to admit that you want to learn about, to engage in. All of those things are huge barriers when it comes to sharing good and healthy information about sex.
1: Yeah. And the point is to ask questions, right? Like, people have questions, kids have questions and they have them in different ways at different ages. But, you know, if you don't have a, a healthy way of asking those questions, what do you do with them? You know?
0: Yeah. When there's no outlet, how do you figure that information out for yourself? Right. So I'm curious about your grandpa's uh, stash of porn novels. Can you walk yeah. us through what, what finding that was like? What, what did that look like? What was filling those pages? Tell us everything.
1: Yeah, it was pretty funny. I mean, my grandfather, you know, he really was a man of the late 60s, early 70s. And so I, I write about this in, in Rage. I, I always say that his, my sense of his life was sort of bookended by Pan Am and Playboy. He was a businessman and he was always traveling. And Playboy clubs he just opened and kind of loomed large in the popular imagination in the early 70s. And so did flight attendants right as sexual objects, and he spent a lot of time in airports and he always bought books in airports. What was so funny about the situation is I was a really bookish kid in a very hot country, which meant that one of the ways to get out of the heat was to quietly read somewhere cool if you were inclined to read. And so I got kind of dispensation from adults not to be locked outside to do things because I was not bothering anybody, right? I was just kind of quietly curling up in a chair. And so I was allowed to go into my grandfather's office and library and, and do that, but nobody checked on what I might be reading. And that was just kind of funny because I read everything. I mean, I could just as easily pick up a, a pulp porn book as I did a classic, you know? Mm-hmm. It didn't make any difference to me. They were all just books in there. So I was just reading them.
0: Yeah. And you said it was really funny. Is that sort of like you putting a lens on it now? Or at the time, do you remember reading them and thinking they were funny? Or like, what did you make of them? Oh, no.
1: I remember thinking, this is really funny. Those people out there have no idea what I'm reading. (laughs) Like, here I am. I know they wouldn't want me to read this, but what do they care? I'm reading it. and. You
0: pulling one over on them and they didn't even know actually
1: i will say the funny thing was that um at one point i pulled out a book on greek urns and it had urns on it and the urns had naked people on it Mm -hmm. um and it wasn't a book about porn it wasn't a book about sex it was not related in any way to the other books that i easily could have pulled out that day But it just so happened that my grandmother came to check on me. And when she saw this book and she saw naked people on these urns, she completely lost her shit Wow! and took the book from me and hit me over the head and dragged me out into the living room where she scolded my grandfather for having books like this. And I was like, but that's not even a book (laughs) like
0: this. (laughs) Imagine if she walked in at any of the time during the
1: porn books. I know it was. And that's why I thought this is really funny. Like there's a lot going on here.
0: <laughs> that's hilarious. And I think yeah. what what is so frustrating about our obsession with nudity is that it's not inherently sexual, right? Like there were two bodies on this urn and just because they were naked, your grandma had a cow, right? But if they were clothed, even though they weren't engaging in any type of sexual activity, just the mere fact that they were naked was enough to push them into the category of inappropriate.
1: Well, and and that in fact makes my grandmother just like Facebook, right? Because one of the things that I've been advocating for, for years now is that content moderators on these large platforms stop conflating women's nudity with pornography and obscenity and stop using this patriarchal lens um, to suppress women's free speech, political speech, artistic speech. There are so many examples of that. And you know, it, it, a lot of people think that the nipple wars, as they're sometimes called online, are, are superficial, but in fact, they're really not um, for reasons like this. You know, when a, when a social media company bars a breastfeeding woman from sharing a picture, which has been done in the past, you know, repeatedly thousands of times, 10,000, thousands of times, because she might show her nipple that is what they are articulating, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that a woman's body is inherently sexual, inherently somehow obscene, inherently pornographic, all of those things.
0: Yeah, for those listening that might not know, the, the sort of classic example, the household example of this sort of censorship happening, particularly on Instagram, as we know, is known by Facebook. Uh, a male nipple is okay to post, but a woman's nipple is not okay to post. So that would be taken down, that would be flagged. And so that is kind of a- the most common example. And we see, of course, that women and femmes of color, fat women and femmes, trans women and femmes are censored um, far more than, you know, thin, white, blonde women and femmes. That's exactly right. And that's been a persistent problem. You know, the sort of
1: institutionalization of ideals of white womanhood, hetero white womanhood. It, It pervades a lot of these policies, you know, and I understand how complicated it is to devise these policies. But in fact, there are just certain decisions that are unabashedly oppressive to women on the basis of these types of beliefs.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, moving back to the lens of sex education, there are so many young people on these apps, right? And so you think that the only way young people on these apps are allowed to see women's bodies, women's and femmes bodies is uh, fully clothed or. Um, through this very particular lens of what is, you know, what uh, type of nudity or partial nudity, nudity is going to be okay and slip through the cracks, and so it just perpetuates this idea, right? That that bodies need to be clothed, or if they're naked, then they're hypersexualized. There's no kind of place for young people to see. Okay, well, naked people don't necessarily mean sex, right? Naked women, naked femmes don't necessarily translate to objectified, sexualized objects,
1: right? And I would also say that there's an additional layer, which is that there's no sense that making those decisions are pol- is political, right? That conflating women's nudity with sex and with pornography is what used to happen. It doesn't happen so much, but with pornography is a political act, right? But when women use nudity to politically protest white supremacist patriarchal oppression, that's also shut down, in the same way, right? So, if um, a bunch, uh, you know, if thousands of topless women, you know, protest outside of a cathedral in Argentina, you will never see that image, for that reason. And they do it for body-based reasons. They do it because women's oppression is so based in in perceptions of our bodies, right? And so that's important to note too. It's really a, a shutting
0: down of political speech. I mean, the notion of bodily autonomy is inherently political when you live in a world in which those at the top are consistently trying to take away the bodily autonomy of certain groups, in this case, Mm -hmm. you know, women and femmes. And so not being able to have control over something like whether or not to have a child or something like what you can or can't post about your body, what you can or cannot wear outside is... Directly tied into sex education, right? Because if we are not introducing any type of counter narrative to our young people, then they're going to continue to consume the dominant norms in our culture about what is and isn't okay for certain bodies to do. And that is political. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because it does almost feel like something that Facebook and Instagram did like a stupid rule that they made and no one knows why they made it. But in reality, it was a very conscious choice and it is deeply reflective of the, the political state that women and femmes bodies is constantly being forced into.
1: Well, and, and I think too, you know, they'll say if we allowed that, we'd be flooded by pornography, right? I mean, the, the holding, the, the, the argument is the minute you allow female nipples, Um, will get swamped, which is actually possibly true, right? But that just means they're unwilling to invest the resources in making those distinctions of context and intent, right? That's a lot. That's very complicated. It's very labor intensive. You cannot do it with machine learning tools or hashing tools. It's very human labor intensive, but they are unwilling to do it to protect women's freedom of expression, right? And so I, I think that Understanding too the relationship between willingness to invest in nuance to protect women's civic and political and you know, participation is part of the problem.
0: Yeah. It's not a money problem, right? We know that these corporations have the money to spend the time to differentiate between something that is in fact pornography and something that is in fact not pornography. But as you said, it's about whether or not they feel that this is a worthy cause for their time and money. And they've shown us time and time again, that it's not. Right. Right. All going back to uh, the porn that you read in your grandpa's study, right? And the the naked bodies on those urns. So were there any conversations happening in your household about sex? No. Okay. No whatsoever. And so I say that you know, I'm a broken record on this podcast, but adults often feel that not talking about it will, you know, erase it in some capacity. But in reality, often the thing that that does is push young people to further and further extremes to get the information that they want.
1: Well, but I I also think too, what that ends up doing is it masks a lot of other things that get confused with sex, like sexual violence or harassment, right? So everywhere... I went, there was street harassment, pervasive street harassment. And I don't, and, and in the Bahamas at that time, um, that meant not just people saying things to you, but people following you or people grabbing you, which we know from global studies happens everywhere, right? It's just, in some places it's, it's more profuse or more intense. But everywhere in the world, by the time a girl is 11, 9, 10, 11, the street harassment has started, girls report being followed, girls report being touched, girls report being threatened. And there's the undercurrent of sexual violence embedded in all of that. And no one talks about that either, right? And so I think it's easy for young people, regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity, to, in a vacuum, throw all of that into one pot right? Throw the ability or entitlement to harass um, or the social position of being harassed into the same bucket as sex that's left undefined.
0: Right. And then that obviously is a really dangerous sort of framework to introduce to young folks because those things aren't the same, right? Like right. equating rape or sexual assault with sex is problematic because it's not, right? right? It is violence. It is a category in its own. And the more that we kind of perpetuate the idea that it's just like a part of sex or it's something that, that young women and girls or girls of all ages and women of all ages have to deal with, the less we are telling those people that they can and should fight back. Right. Or that,
1: frankly, it's flattering, right? Mm. That's what a lot of girls learn. I just had an adult man say this to me three days ago. Um, I was described. he was asking me what it was like to live in the Bahamas in the 70s. And I said, well, if you're going to paint a portrait of what it's like to walk down the street, you know, you would have to include this aspect of that. And he said, but isn't that cultural? And I mean you know, my, my spouse walks down the street and, it, you know, people flatter her. And I'm like, have you ever really interrogated what would happen if she didn't consider it flattering? If she didn't smile, if she didn't say thank you, if she told the guy to fuck off, yep. right? It's not actually flattering at all.
0: No. And, and what it is, it's, com- it's completely objectifying and dehumanizing, right? Because it turns the target of that into not a human being, but an object of, desire, an object of sex, an object of beauty in whatever capacity they're being harassed, right? And that's right. not flattering. <laughs> right. Needless to say. So outside of those channels, were you having conversations with your friends or your social circle at all about sex?
1: It was more conversations. They were never explicit conversations. It was more conversations about attraction and to personal dynamics, that's how I would categorize it. If you grew up in a religious household, which I did, it was a Catholic, you just did not talk about sex. I mean, there was sex happening mm-hmm. and there was there was the constant adolescent awareness of sex, but no one really talked about it. You either had sex or didn't have sex or tried to have sex or tried to avoid sex. There were no conversations. It was just kind of in the atmosphere. Mm
0: -hmm. So it sounds like all in all, there was not a lot of dialogue happening in your teenage years through any of the many channels that it tends to happen. Um, Not really happening at all. No, not happening at all. Interesting. Okay. So we're going to move into a conversation about your intersecting identities. Can you share with us what your intersecting identities are?
1: (laughs) That's such an interesting question. So I am straight, cisgendered, multi-ethnic, immigrant, American. That's how I would probably throw all of those into the the mix.
0: So even though you didn't get much sex ed back then, you can sort of switch lenses to what you consumed as you got older, what, what you're learning about sex now. But did you find that any of those identities were represented in the sex education material you have consumed in your life
1: well i mean i've spent a lot of time studying sex education material right and i think that the first thing always to me is how strikingly heteronormative it is and how strikingly rigid so much sex ed remains yep you know and rigid in so many binary senses Um, I think that that has changed over time, but in fact, even though some of us are immersed in making that change happen, the fact is that there has been an explosion of abstinence-based, religiously informed, frankly, dangerous and ignorant information being passed on to kids if they get anything at all. And so I don't wanna sort of universalize what I would say is probably a more intense exposure. I mean, like you, like others who were involved in this kind of work, I spent a lot of time looking at this material and thinking, what does it mean as an expression of power or dominance in the culture to focus sometimes really single-mindedly on withholding healthy information from young people? Because that's really what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. And withholding in some cases and in other cases, flat out falsehoods, right? Like sharing information that is in fact scientifically inaccurate, yes. not correct, and doing it in a way that is that is trying to erase the realities of many folks in this country.
1: Right. And And also to inculcate a sense of shame and to have double standards about you know, men and women and their needs and behaviors and roles and responsibilities, it's all kind of embedded in, you know, I'm not too crazy about the word rapey, but rapey actually is right. It's the sort of rapey ethos of not clarifying for kids what their rights are and how to listen to each other.
0: I um, think about the legislation in place. You know what little we have that actually legislates sex education and how it varies so wildly from a state to state basis and yeah. how I mean perhaps it's it's a little bit different now that we have things like social media mm-hmm. yeah. which happen to be a wealth of resources about sex and sexuality if you know what you're looking at right if yes. you know how to find it right but the inform the the reality that you can perceive for yourself as a young person is going to depend so. Entirely on where you grow up in this country. You know, and this, yes. you know, we're looking through the lens of the United States here, but how, you know, something in New York versus something in Texas, oh, yeah. something There's in no- Portland. I mean, we are just setting our young people up for mass, mass confusion. <laughs> I mean, well, it's and, really what I, I can think of. You know, of.
1: it's interesting because I also think you can see that in what I would describe as a disintegration of healthy interpersonal relationships for a generation of people, an entire generation of people who don't know how to communicate, not only because they didn't have access to the right information or accurate information medically or information that was framed sort of in healthy, progressive ways, but because they were definitively dragged into the opposite of those things, you know? Really exposed to media that was hyper-gendered hyper hetero, hyper uh, violent. And I don't mean pornography here, I just mean mainstream media. Because in the past 25 years, as we have exported our media to the rest of the world, the sort of lingua, lingua franca of that media has been this kind of superhero, um, hard charging, violent, you know, masculine expression and domination. Mm -hmm. Because it's easy for everyone to absorb that. You know, we're not going to make movies about transgressive trans women and lesbian revolutionaries and send those movies to other countries. That, That just doesn't happen.
0: Right, exactly. And I think it ties so, so obviously back to the conversation we were having about these choices being deeply political and how if we were to show um, movies about powerful trans women or lesbians taking over the world, right, that gives a lot of power to the, that mm-hmm. those groups of people. And that is something that we are actively trying to avoid in the United States, obviously in other countries as well. And that is reflected in sex education material. I mean, particularly right. when you are looking at the most severe kind of abstinence only until marriage, perhaps something that's deeply religious that you'd find in a church. Like those tropes aren't maybe word for word, what you'll see in like a superhero flick, but they are cut from the same cloth. And Mm -hmm. we are really pounding these messages from every sort of angle that we are able to. And we don't really give young people a chance to get away from that. Like if we are controlling every outlet of information that comes in and there's no comprehensive sex education to kind of like fight against those narratives. We're not giving young folks really a chance to find any other way.
1: Right? And and I think I think it's important too that, um, that and this is part of the issue I see with the 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 name sex ed. Like it's too narrow a focus for everything we are talking about, right? And And we understand what it means, but for your average person, that is not the case.
0: Yeah. What comes up for me is um, Isabel Wilkerson's cast. And in the beginning, she talks about like, well, why even bother, like stop talking about racism and start talking about casteism? Like, like what does it serve to kind of change the lens, change the verbiage? And I think a similar thing applies here. It's like, we have this reaction to the word sex, the idea of sex education. It is deeply politicized, deeply stigmatized. And so there's a lot of heavy weight being carried around with that. When in Mm -hmm. reality, it's a life skills class, right? That's right. It encompasses emotional intelligence, uh, mental health, personal growth, interpersonal relationships. And so maybe changing that name would help kind of take the burden off of, 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 sex ed to, you know, to open up and be about so much more. I don't know.
1: Yeah. You should talk to Jacqueline Friedman, who's done excellent thinking about this.
0: I mean, I'm a huge fan of hers, so hopefully I can one day.
1: She's doing really great
0: work. It's an interesting lens. It's definitely an interesting lens. Right. So I guess the long answer was you maybe saw some of yourself represented or?
1: I never saw myself represented in the material. Okay like it, it, it literally had nothing to do with me. I was yeah. like, yes, I menstruate, move
0: along. That was literally it. yeah, so there wasn't even there wasn't even anything to see yourself in. it sounds like
1: <laughs> yeah, but I would stress again that that was broadly true anyway, yeah, right? So I sometimes talk about the fact that I didn't see a character and I'm, I'm a movie fanatic, I'll see any movie, I'll watch it to the bitter end. you can't drag me out of theater. I don't care how bad it is. But the first time I ever saw a character that resonated deeply with me, I was 48 and Mm -hmm. I was watching a a movie called Wajda. And I'm not Saudi, I've never been to Saudi Arabia, but there was a young girl whose presence and, and experiences and appearance just were mine as a young girl. And I had never seen that. So it wasn't that there was something unique about sex ed. It was just not available.
0: Yeah. I also find what came up for me when you were talking, it's not uncommon for folks that have any identity really outside of the norm, the dominant, you know, right. cultural idea of what is normal. You, you remember when you see yourself. Yeah, because you do. It's, it's striking. That's right. Because it's so, you're like, wait, what? Like I yeah. never see this. And it really is a moment of like, I, I've not seen this before.
1: It's exceptional. Like it does stick with you.
0: Yeah. Like you said, you were 48. So that means you went 48 years of your life watching hundreds and thousands of movies, it sounds like, and not seeing yourself at all. And like, you know, as an adult doing the work you can do, you can compartmentalize that, you can work to understand it, whatever. But like as a young person, it's just when you don't have the language to figure out why you can't see yourself. I mean, that's something that we would address in sex ed if it was there, you know what I mean? Right. I I think too that
1: the the upside to all of that though is and this is always true of the oppressed, you gain great insight into other people um, and you're able to, I don't even know if empathize is the right word, but you certainly um, understand more. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think the, the analogy of like wearing <clears throat> your goggles, right? Like everybody in America, wears white goggles because we were raised in, you know, white supremacist society. So regardless of your race, you know what it's like to be white. You can understand what it's Mm -hmm. like to be white. You know about white media. I can't remember what book I was reading. I think it was So You Want to Talk About Race, but she was like, I know how to do white women's hair. I'm not a white woman, but that's what I know because that's what the dominant culture teaches you. And so like to, to just be constantly fed that and have no idea how your own identities. Fit into that narrative or that they have their own narrative entirely again is something that we can teach in comprehensive sex ed but without giving young folks that language it's just an erasure right right okay so have some of your intersecting identities see where they fit in where they didn't fit in mostly didn't right i'd love to bring the conversation forward to today to life beyond high school and and the years leading up to where we are now so how do you think that your sex education journey has impacted your relationship to sex today?
1: Well, I mean, I, 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 so much of the work that I do, um, thinking about and writing about women's rights has to do with women's bodies. And because of issues like this has to do with all of these sex ed issues. You know, I, I, to me, the as we just said, sex ed is sort of one component, um, very integral component of uh, many different bigger issues, right? If we had a Venn diagram, sex ed might be in the middle of a lot of them because in fact, it does give us the opportunity to reach people when they're young, which is why it's so controversial, right? Like that's why it's so politicized. That's why it's so scary to adults and administrators and schools. It's because it has a lot of power and what we say in a sex ed class um, is important. And so that's why people fight. And so I I think that in so far as I'm an adult and I'm surrounded by my own family, by my spouse, by my children, by my community, by schools that I've been affiliated with. Um, I've tried myself to be as forthright and open and honest about talking about these issues, sex, sexual violence, what it means to make your own sexual decisions, what it means to say no. I mean, I'm a really big person for saying yes means yes, but in fact, if you can't say no, your yes means nothing. Yep. Right. And so my goal has always been to not perpetuate the silence and shame that I grew up with, but to try and create a culture in which um, openness and honesty and healthy regard for oneself and others is the norm.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, you know, after hearing your journey with sex ed as a young person was not much. And now you are steeped in work about sex education. I mean, obviously all of these things, like you said, sex education really sits at the center of the diagram of women's Mm -hmm. free speech, of sexual violence, of all that stuff. So Was there, like, when do you feel like it turned around for you? How did you decide like, oh, wow, I didn't learn about any of this, but like now this is where I want to be. Like, what did that look like for you?
1: I mean, honestly, for me, it was very early and it was interesting. I think if I had to locate a moment, it was when I was about 13. I was younger. I may have been a little younger. You know, we, we went to church every Sunday. I went to catechism. I went to Catholic schools. Very conventional parents in that way. But I, it never occurred to me that a, a woman couldn't be a priest. It just had never occurred to me. And I said, you know, I think I'd like to be a priest. And my, my dad just burst out laughing. And my mother was like, oh, maybe you should talk to the, the, the priest about that. And so I did talk to the priest about it. And fortunately or unfortunately, the priest who was an Irishman who was also drunk more or less said, which I, I said, you know, are you really telling me that it's because... Some people like you're, you're, it's coming down to some people having penises and others not. And and it was, he was like more or less. And so for me, it sounded so dumb, right? I just thought this makes zero sense. And what am I here for? Like if if this institution really fundamentally believes that it's not the institution for me. And so I pretty much said to my parents, I'll go if I have to, but I'm not participating in any of this. I'm not Mm -hmm. taking communion. I'm not doing any of it. And they respected that, but I did spend the next 10 or 12 years studying that, the history of theology and in college I did it. And at the end of the 10 years, I was like, no, it is that. It is that dumb. And so more or less, a lot of the things that I associated with Catholicism, including this approach to sex, I just chucked it because it wasn't good for me, and it wasn't healthy, and it wasn't helping me. Um, and at least I had the wherewithal, because of the love of my family, to do that. A lot of people don't. You know, it wasn't like my parents punished me for saying that. They're like, "Okay, not for you." And I was like, "No, not for me. <laughs> Shouldn't be for anyone. Right,
0: <laughs> right, for that matter." <laughs> That's so interesting. And I, when I hear stories like this, which are not uncommon, I find in folks doing this type of work. Yeah. um, Like if you didn't have the gusto to just wholesale chuck it, like if you didn't have the foresight and the ability to say to yourself, well, if this is how this institution is going to treat me, I'm done with it. What would have happened to you? Right. And we know what would have happened because we see it happen time and and Sex education is the thing that can give young people that cultural analysis, right? To look at something and say like that internal dialogue that you had, well, let me connect these dots, right? This is how this drunk guy feels about this. And that is actually representative of how the whole thing works. Well, maybe it's not for me. Like even that internal dialogue is kind of revolutionary for a young person to have that was never told that they can do that. Right,
1: and I would say that's because I had the unconditional love of my parents, right? Like, that's what enabled me to do that. And in fact, the transition for me was, it's not for me, and as I said, it really shouldn't be for anyone, because we all live in relation to others, and so it's not enough for me to say it's not for me. It also can't be for the people I associate with closely and intimately, because why on earth would I do that?
0: Yeah. And that, uh, the example of the church is such an interesting one because, you know, to some degree or other different for everyone, like you are able to opt out of it, right? If you so choose and you have the unconditional love and spirit of your family, but what if a young person has that thought about the gender binary, Right. How do you opt out of that? You know what I mean? And so there's so many opportunities for us to be able to teach young people. No, like you can opt out if this isn't for you, but it, we need to be conscious about it because it is something that is so, it is just so nebulous in the air that it feels like you can opt out of it, you know? Right. And, and sex education is the answer to that, right? Teaching young people you know, how to analyze dominant culture, how to see when something is damaging to you and your people and how to challenge that and how to let it go, right? To say like, I'm going to choose not to take this with me.
1: Right. And and I think what's important too for young people, so many people talk about the downsides of tech and I've spent a lot of time myself talking about the downsides of tech, but it's the scaremongering around sex and tech, sex and tech, sex and tech, Mm -hmm. as if sex and tech have some intrinsic moral or ethical cadence to them. And that's just not true, right? It's really how we use the, the ideas and what we use these ideas for. But so much good has come out of sex and tech, right? So much so much good has come for people who are marginalized and who don't have that security at home. And that that's really important because, I mean, I've often spoken to young people who are isolated who are vulnerable, who are already subject to violence in their own intimate circles and families. And it's important to know that in order to take those steps to help yourself and be healthy and safe and have healthy relationships, you do need a community around you. You need to find people who believe you and will listen to you and understand your experiences and have your back. That is 1000% necessary. It's not enough to say to you, young person, Just don't do that. Walk away. Just say no to those people. That's just simply inadequate.
0: Yeah. The community needs to be created to catch you on the other side of that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, okay, is there anything that you wish that you could unlearn from your sex education experience?
1: Hmm, that I could unlearn. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've done so much unlearning. I will say that I think I have unlearned this, but one of the strongest messages I got from the not messages was that if something happened to me, it was my fault. Mm -hmm. And I think all girls and women get that message because from the time we have any conscious memory, we are being taught ways to keep ourselves safe. And very often we're mocked for doing it. And we self-censor and we self-restrict in an effort to do those, to keep ourselves safe and to not expose ourselves to predatory sexual behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are hard to unlearn those lessons, you know? And so that's one thing I would say probably.
0: Yeah, especially when there's no dialogue about teaching perpetrators not to perpetrate right? It's uh, the the responsibility is placed singularly on the victims to not become victims.
1: I'll give you a very good example. That's brand spanking new. When my daughters graduated from high school, I got an email, not my husband. I got an email saying, isn't this great? We are offering the self-defense class for graduating senior girls Mm -hmm. because they're going off to college. And wink, wink, could be raped, especially those first few months. We're not gonna say that, but that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And it was a hundred dollars a kid. I had twins and I was, I went from zero to a hundred thousand in about three seconds. Mm -hmm. And I thought, first of all, why are the boys not being asked to pay a hundred dollars a piece to learn not to be rapists? Like what the fuck? Wild. Right? And I thought to myself, so these girls, like most kids, are going to go to a school, wherever they end up, where they will be in school with other kids a lot like them, which means a lot like the boys that they've been in school with already. Mm -hmm. And yet crickets when it comes to not just talking to the boys about it, but charging the girls money to do this. And that's really, frankly, disheartening. It's enraging and it's yeah. disheartening. And this was at an institution where I had, for for many years, been a, you know, known as a troublemaker. Yeah. And that gets really wearisome. Like, you know, to be the lightning rod for those conversations and know that penalties will accrue to your children is yeah. very hard.
0: Yeah. Um, can I ask what the response was?
1: I'm trying to remember what I did. That was the end of a lot of other things. Yeah. You know, I mean, at one point when the kids were maybe in fifth or sixth grade, they did have a sex ed class. And in the sex ed class, they showed the cross section of women's reproductive organs and not men's reproductive organs. And I said, hey, are you going to do that tomorrow? Right. And they were like, well, well no, we, ra- we ran out of time. And in fact, the teacher was male and that got me the name penis mom there but, you go and so i think that it cannot happen fast enough soon enough early enough
0: you know yeah absolutely and what strikes me about that is like the idea or the the anticipation that that would have been a very well received email right? Like it sounds like the, the school- You mean the, the self-defense? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like the school was 100%. like, look at us. We're doing this great thing for all the girls. You know, this is great. I will say this though. I don't want to knock
1: self-defense, right? Yeah. Because self-defense is good. And and in fact, has been proven to reduce the likelihood that a young woman will get assaulted, right? Yeah. So I, I want to set that aside from the way in which it was done very clearly, right? Like. As far as I know, I've never taken self-defense class. My daughters haven't, but I would happily do it, Yeah, right? I've just never done it and they should do it. Like, I think it's a very good thing. So I don't want to conflate those two things. It was really just the manner in which it was executed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then the reality, right? That like men don't get sexually assaulted either. Well, and also all of that dynamic
1: contributes to the likelihood that young boys are more likely to be assaulted, right? We have no culture, we have no scripts in our culture for protecting boys from molestation. Mm -hmm. And and until they're 10, they are as likely as a young girl to be molested. And yet we don't protect them because we don't have a culture that acknowledges that boys can be assaulted, usually by men. Mm -hmm. Like that's so silent that it takes men until they're well in their 50s and facing complete life crisis because of a lifelong of, you know, a life of shame, they, they can never talk about it. Right. It's all rape mythologizing. The whole thing falls into rape mythologies.
0: Along the binary, right? Like that. Along the binary. It is only one party doing one thing and the other gender doing the other thing. And that's right. it. There's nobody else and there's no crossing the right. lines. Yeah. Right. Well, wow, that's a, that's, that's quite an example. Okay. So that's a, Very good thing to unlearn. I'm with you. That needs to, uh, that needs to go out with the trash. Okay. This brings us to our final question. Soraya, knowing what you know now, what do you wish that your sex education journey could have looked like?
1: Well, I mean, it would have been great to have a healthy relationships class every year of school that I went to school. That's all like starting in first grade, how do you have healthy relationships? How do you play with people? How do you respect them? How do you share? How do you uh, listen? Like it's so, we, we just don't teach people how to understand their own emotions. I mean, the book I read, Rage Becomes Her is very much about learning your own feelings and what they're telling you and how to label them and what to do with them, Yeah, right? And all of that at some point, a class like that on, on and, and we sort of, you know, there's a whole approach in education, social and emotional learning that's very important, but somehow sex ed gets carved out of that as opposed to them being understood as part of a whole cloth. Um, so that I think is very important,
0: especially because there is no other class right now that's teaching that social and emotional intelligence. It's not like right. there's sex ed. And there's also like, you know, personal relationships 101. Like it's, it's just like math and science. Like that's the other yeah. stuff that's happening. It's not as if this is happening somewhere else. It's that it's not happening at all. Yeah, And that, as you said, it, it has to happen in concert with a sex education narrative because you can't separate the two out.
1: Right. And it's not sex ed when you're talking to third graders, right? It's literally, how are you touching people? Are you in their space? This is an interesting link that I don't think people think about. But at some point on a playground, boys take over the playground space, and girls are relegated to the periphery to find spaces that they can play in. Mm -hmm. That is a social issue.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? That is an issue yes, of development, but also of intervention, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, where we try and figure out what that dynamic is and not default to the lazy assumption that that's just nature.
0: Right. And I think uh, this kind of goes back to what you said about like the term sex ed causing, you know, moral panic, but sex ed is age appropriate. So right. you can give a toddler sex ed, but it's not penis and vagina. You know, well, it's naming those things, but it's not right. what we think of as like sex ed in the gym class with the gym teacher. Right. It's something completely different from that. Right. But as we've been saying, all of that falls under the sex ed umbrella. It just isn't what we understand sex ed to be like as part of right. the dominant cultural narrative, which is an argument to change the name. Right. Also, I, I believe the statistic is the average American high schooler gets seven hours of sex education in their high school career, it's and like, ridiculous. I mean, what what can you really internalize over four over a four year period in seven hours? I mean, it's just it's it's, it's yeah. absurd. It's totally yeah. absurd. Okay, fantastic. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation. Before we officially close out, I would love to give you the opportunity to let the listeners know where they can find you.
1: Oh, thank you. I am sharing my work on Twitter um, at s so at S-C-H-E-M-A-L-Y. Um, also Instagram at Rage Becomes Her. And I have a Facebook page. Those are probably the easiest. I have a website, sarayashamali.com, where you can find books and articles and other forms of media.
0: Okay, fantastic. And we will link all of that on Thank my you. website and we will tag it on Instagram so everyone can okay. find you. Thank you so much. It was
1: a delight to talk to you. <laughs>
0: Find the show on Instagram at SexEdRewind or online on my website at caroconfort.me. I drop new episodes to podcast platforms every Monday. The cover art and website are by Kelsey Reifler, and the podcast is produced and edited all by me.